What would you think of a husband who claimed to love his wife, um, but had no amount of anger at all if she was threatened or worse, mistreated? Just didn't bother him at all that his wife was being mistreated. What would you think of a father who stood idly by with, with no amount of anger as he watched his, his children being abused? And even worse, I want you to picture his children being abused and crying out to their father for help. And the father's just not bothered by it at all. Um, he doesn't interact. He doesn't get angry. Like, what would, you, what would you think of that? These images, they shock us. They disgust us. Like, like I, I don't know how many times I've heard a parent say, you can mess with me. And that's one thing. But you mess with my kids, right? Like, that's another thing. Okay, the wrath is coming. And we understand these human emotions. But for some reason... We seem to neglect those emotions when it comes to God, our Father. God who calls us his bride. We seem to think that a God of love, well, a God of love could never be angry. But that misses the fact that the reality is true love arouses the most holy of anger. Right? Like, if you cross me, that's one thing. You cross my wife, like, you got, you're going to have to lock me up for a while. Calm me down a bit. But some, for some reason, we think that a loving God couldn't be angry at sin or, or evil. And yet, that, that is what the Bible tells us. That he does get angry at um, injustice, at sin. He does get angry at those who mistreat his bride or his children and worse, disregard him, um, their creator. I want you to add to, the, to the, the sin in this room alone. Okay, our sins, all the sins that we did this past week. If we could put that kind of in a pile here. And then multiply that by all the people who have ever lived. I want you to think about all of it, right? From, from the liar, uh, from the selfish person who only thinks about themselves, to the rapist, to the murderer, all of those sins just piled up in a pile. And, and, and add to that the thousands of years of God's people crying out, how long, O Lord, until you bring justice? How long until you make these wrongs right? What will it look like for a God of holy love and justice to pour out his wrath on that sin? It's a pretty shocking picture. And we get a glimpse of that today as we look at 15 and 16, and we see the seven final bowls of the wrath of God poured out, which I know is not a good way to grow a church, right, these days to preach about the wrath of God and that he's going to pour out fire and brimstone. Like, I know that's not a popular message, but the reality is if we just apply that to our human relationships, we understand You're going to see wrath from a parent whose children are mistreated. You're going to see wrath from a husband whose wife is mistreated. And you're going to see wrath from a God who loves us in a way that we can't even fully comprehend. He is a God of justice. He is a God of wrath. And as difficult as that is maybe to wrestle with and to consider, it's also a great comfort. Chris Morgan puts it this way. The coming wrath answers, not raises, but answers the ultimate questions related to the justice of God. Like, is God just? The coming wrath says, yes, he is. Because through the coming wrath, judgment, and hell, God's ultimate victory is displayed over evil, and his righteousness is vindicated. Listen to this. There is comfort to wrath and hell that God will one day avenge his people, points to his covenant faithfulness, and urges patience and hope and perseverance and worship. God will judge everyone, the weak and the powerful, He and his people will win in the end, and he will ensure that justice prevails. You you have experience, like we love justice in our culture. We love it. That's why we like the shows Law and Order and NCIS and CSI. Like we love it when justice is done. 
But for some reason, we just can't grapple with a God of justice. But that should bring comfort to us. That when we see the evil atrocities all around us, that we know God's keeping track. And that justice will come. And that the wrongs will be made right. And that that all will be made right in the end. God is not a father who idly watches his children cry out for help. He is keeping track. And what did he tell them in Revelation when the saints under the altar prayed, God, oh sovereign Lord, how long until you avenge us? He says, wait a little longer. Wait a little longer. Why? Because God is slow to anger and he's patient. And if you're here today and you've never responded to the offer of salvation where you can be freed from the wrath of God, that's his patience and his love in your life today. He wants to give people a chance to repent and believe. He says, I take no desire or no no joy in the death of the wicked. He wants people to be saved. And so it's it's really a privilege that, that we're here today and we're able to hear this warning. But just know that a God of wrath is definitely a God of love and we don't have to divide the two. So we're in Revelation. We're looking at the wrath of God today and some of you are like, man, I wish he would pray one more time so I could sneak out the back, right? I say that a lot, but, but this, is, this is good for us to hear. And I think there will be a lot of application for us um, as we kind of look through this. And, and just to remind you where, you've, where we've been, if you're joining us for the first time in a little while, Revelation is all about the unseen spiritual war that's going on. Okay, so John peels back the curtain and shows us what's really going on. He shows us the conflict behind the conflict. And last week we saw that we have an enemy, that we are in a war, that it's, it's a, the enemy is Satan. The enemy is not Republicans or Democrats. Okay, the enemy is not fellow church members who you disagree with. The enemy is Satan, and he's doing everything to get our eyes off of him and on each other so that we're fighting and bickering and complaining about the wrong thing. And, and we saw that there is a war going on and that Satan is going to use persecution. He's going to use false teaching. He's going to use moral compromise. And the book of Revelation is given to us to wake us up, to realize we're in a war, and to endure, to overcome, to conquer, to live for Christ in this present evil age. And I told you, if you had to summarize the book of Revelation, it's just this. God wins. God wins. We see Jesus in the letters in the beginning, and then we see this throne room vision where Jesus comes and he takes the scroll, which I said he's taking the reins of history, and then he starts to unopen those seals, and and he he starts to bring in history, and we saw that that really described for us the last 2,000 years of wars and rumors of wars and persecution, and, and it's only intensifying when we see the trumpets, and when we come to the bowls, I believe this is the final outpouring of God's wrath in the very end. Okay, and so I'm going to survey for you uh, 15 and 16. In 15, John sees another sign in heaven, as Joey read earlier, and he describes it as great and amazing. You can just tell as John writes Revelation, he's grasping for words to try to describe these amazing visions that he's seeing. He sees seven angels with seven plagues that represent God's final outpouring of his wrath on evil. The sea of glass before the throne that we saw in chapter 4 is now mingled with fire and the saints of God are standing before the throne with harps and they're praising God. And look at verses 3 and 4 of 15. Look at what they sing. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. 
So here they are praising God for the judgment that he's about to pour out on the wicked. But notice the song that they're singing, the song of Moses. Why are they singing that? Well, because it's the song of Moses, but it finds its climax in the song of the Lamb. Why? Because this highlights the fact that we are about to witness the final exodus of the people of God. Okay, in the, Isra- in the Israelites, we saw them, they were in bondage to Egypt, um, and, and they were enslaved to Egypt, and they cried out for God, and he sent to deliver. And what did he do? He poured out these plagues on Egypt, and he delivered his people. And we're going to see the final climactic expression of that exodus here. In the end, when he saves his people from wrath, he delivers us from sin and from this broken creation, and he pours out his evil on the wicked. This is a pattern that we saw in Exodus that we see through the Bible that God is glorified both in salvation and in judgment. After this, John sees the sanctuary open and it's filled with smoke from the glory of God. And these seven angels are there preparing to pour out the final bowls of God's wrath. And this brings us to chapter 17. So 15, or, or chapter 16. In 15, it's all building up. It's all like, what's going to happen? They're, they're about to pour out God's wrath. And in 16, we see this climactic conclusion of judgment. If you remember, Jesus said that the end time judgments would be like birth pains. Okay, they would get closer together and more intense over time. All right, and, and as, as we walk through Revelation, we see this and that the seal judgments, they impacted a fourth of the earth. Then we saw the trumpet judgments and they impacted a third of the earth. And now we see these bold judgments, and they impact the whole world. Like, there's no fraction given. It's, it's full. It's complete. It's final. And again, normally I would walk you verse by verse through things like this. I'm just giving you a survey because this is just a survey of the book. But in the first four bulls, we see God striking the natural world and systematically undoing what he did in creation. Listen to these bulls. In bull one, the earth is impacted and painful sores are given to worshipers of the beast. In bowl two, it impacts the sea and it's turned to blood and everything in it dies. In bowl three, the rivers and springs are impacted and they turn to blood. And then bowl four impacts the sun and it scorches people with heat. Again, these are, these are apocalyptic imagery of, of the final day of judgment. Okay, and so I, I wouldn't try to put these and, and necessarily make them super literal as we read them. These are just imaging for us how bad it's going to be when God pours out his wrath. Okay. After bowl three, you may actually be wondering, is this overkill? Like, is this, ju- like, this seems a little hot, right? But look at what the third angel assures us in verse five. Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. Listen, sometimes we think that today we're sophisticated and and we understand things. And and when we read about a God of wrath, that just doesn't fit with today. And we know that that couldn't be true. and, and, And that just doesn't seem just. But listen, these readers were dealing with those same questions. And that's why John assures us through this angel, this is just. It seems overkill. but That's just because we have such a small view of sin. And such a small view of God's holiness. But this is just, they are getting what they deserve. We're reminded that that no unbeliever will receive judgment from God that they didn't deserve. It's hard to hear, but we need to hear it. The next three bowls specifically target the satanic kingdom of darkness, which we've talked about in, in future sermons. And if you're a little bit lost, just stay with me. We are getting to application. And you can always jump on the podcast and catch up, all right? 
Bowl five impacts the throne of the beast and it's plunged into darkness. And then bowl six dries up the river Euphrates and it makes way for this great battle of Armageddon, which I'm sure you've heard about and have questions. Um, you can ask me about that later, okay? Um, we see these unclean spirits come from this unholy trinity and they actually convince, think of this, they actually convince unbelievers that you should try to make war against God. You know, we have these things in our world called plausibility structures, and they're different for each culture. It's what we think is possible, what we think is actually um, possible of happening. And I want you to think about a world in which people think it's actually possible to gather up some troops and fight against God, who spoke all this into existence. That's demonic. They're blinded. And this is why I say we shouldn't get frustrated with people who don't believe because they're blinded, and we just have to pray for them that God would open their eyes. Okay, but, but they actually try to make war against God. And after Bowl 6, we see a reminder that Jesus is coming soon and that we need to be ready. We need to be awake. We need to keep our righteous garments on. And then Bowl 7 comes. And, and like the end of the seals and the trumpets, um, we see this great earthquake, this flash of lightning, these peals of thunder. The city of man is destroyed and God's kingdom is coming in all of its fullness. We again see this upheaval of the natural worlds, the islands and Mountains are, are moved and there's great hailstones that fall to the earth. And you would think that when judgment like this comes, whatever this looks like, we don't know for sure how this is going to look in our actual like, physical world. But when this comes, you would think people would repent and believe. Right? Like flee from this and go to God. Like ask for forgiveness. And yet it says instead of repenting, they curse God. They curse God. Instead of seeing them as the problem who brought these judgments upon themselves, they blame God for it. So this leads to a question, okay? We're done with 15 and 16. How in the world do we apply these chapters, right? Some of you are like, I thought this was a sermon. It felt like a college lecture. Like, what do you, how do we apply this? Like, okay, God's wrath is coming. All right, amen. Like, how do we apply this, okay? This is heavy stuff. We don't like to talk about it if we're honest. But remember, all scripture is profitable, we need to hear this. There's a reason for this. So how do we apply it? And I pulled out three applications that I want you to see. First of all, we should realize that evil will not triumph. Isn't that awesome? Living in our broken and sin-cursed world, it can seem as if justice will never come. Evil will continue to triumph. Unbelievers and wicked people will continue to prosper. And God's people, it just seems to get harder and harder to live for God. And it just seems like, when is justice going to come? Why does it seem like evil is always winning? At times, I'm sure you've joined the cry of God's people all throughout the Bible who ask that question. God, how long until you intervene? How long until you step into this brokenness and make things right? How long until you punish the wicked that we see all around us? God, how long? But these chapters remind us that God is just, that he is keeping track, that he will bring justice, that he will right every wrong. Evil will not continue to go unpunished. The wicked will get what they deserve. And so when we're tempted to despair, as we look around at our world today, remember that evil will not triumph. That's not just some fluffy, happy thing to hold on to in a hard time. That's rock-solid biblical truth that God is a God of justice and evil will not triumph. That's an amazing reality. If we know that evil will not triumph and that wicked will be punished, there's another reality that we should put here, along with being comforted ourselves. We should warn others, right? 
We should, like, if we know evil is not going to triumph, that wickedness will be punished, we should tell people the gospel? Listen, I want you to think right now of one person you can share the gospel with this week. I want you to write their name down or file it away. Who needs to hear about God's glorious offer of salvation? It's really simple. We're all sinners separated from God. He sent his son Jesus to die for our sins, to rise again. And he offers salvation to all who will turn and trust him. Who can you share that with this week? I want you, I want you to realize evil's not going to triumph, and that's a great comfort for us. But we should also warn people that they can escape the wrath of God right now. The second application I saw is that we should remember to stay in the fight. In the beginning of the series, I told you that Revelation was written as tracts for hard times. Okay, it was given to this small, frustrated, and persecuted church, and it was given to them to help them persevere. Right? Like, it was this little church. Like, right now, last week, I think I told you this. I said, I want you to imagine the Christians all over the world today that are worshiping the risen Christ. How awesome is that? In a little town like Port Austin, in a little church like this, it can be tempted to, to, to forget about that. But there are Christians all over the world worshiping Jesus today, and we're part of that church. Like, we're part of that kingdom. That's awesome. But can I say that these early Christians, they didn't really have that. They were a very, very small minority. And Rome was hovering hard over them. And they were wondering, is Jesus really worth following? I told you a few weeks ago that when we get baptized, when when you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, and you publicly show that belief by being buried in the water like Jesus was buried and rise again to walk in newness of life, when that happens, like, you can say that's a little embarrassing to get up there, like, to get in here and to let me dunk you underwater. It's a little bit weird. Like, I don't know if I want to do that. But that's all in our, in our culture. Man, I struggle with saying that. But in other cultures, you realize that there, there could be government spies in the church building writing down those names of people who have professed faith in Christ. And, and later they're locking them up, killing them, and persecuting them. I don't say that to guilt trip you. I just say we need to wake up. We need to stay in the fight. We need to realize this little church got this message of revelation and they were reminded, stay in the fight, conquer, persevere. What do we see all throughout the letters? To him who overcomes, to him who conquers, to him who overcomes, keep fighting. And in chapter 15, who do we see standing before the lamb, uh, before the throne, singing the song of Moses and the lamb? Look at verse two. Those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. So, so those who conquer, those who stay in the fight, those who don't give up, will be with God before the Lamb, before the throne, worshiping God. That's awesome. And then in 16, verse 15, Jesus himself speaks. And look at what he says. If you have a Bible with the words of Christ in red, you can find it right away. It's the little red verse there. And 16, and Jesus says this, Behold, in the middle of these judgments, these apocalyptic imagery, all of this, Jesus says this, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. What is this? What is he saying? It's another reminder to stay morally alert, to live righteously, to stay in the fight, to endure, to conquer, to overcome, to stay awake to the unseen realities that are all around us. I read this last week. I want you to think about this. Recently, an Iranian couple came to live in America, okay? They were Christians. And they left behind the fastest growing church in the world, which is in the oppressed nation of Iran. And after being here about two weeks, listen to what the wife said to the husband. She said, there is a demonic lullaby playing in the churches here. The Christians are sleepy and I'm getting sleepy. 
Let's go home. And they did. They went back to potential persecution and death because they wanted real Christianity. They wanted Christians to realize we're in a war. We're in a fight. The life is short and eternity is forever. And we need to wake up. And, and can I say, if you felt guilty from that, I felt guilty reading that. We, we are so comforted here. Man, we're frustrated when the service time gets changed. Like, I want you to think about the things that hinder us from gathering with God's people to worship. And yet there are Christians all over the world right now spilling their blood to worship Jesus. And so, so this reminder from Jesus is, hey, I'm coming. And I'm coming soon. Stay awake. Keep your garments on. Stay in the fight. Overcome. Persevere. Don't give up. Tom Schreiner comments, promise of coming judgment is not merely a word for unbelievers. It's an urgent reminder to the church of Jesus that they must not join forces with the wicked. If they do so, they will face the same fate. And so we must stay in the fight. We must overcome. But lastly, we should rest and rejoice in the gospel. As we read this chapter, we're shocked by the graphic pictures of God's wrath. I tried to kind of help you understand that, and maybe it's still kind of leaving you with a bitter taste in your mouth. But listen, what should shock you more is that you're not part of that group that's going to receive the wrath of God. Like, that's what should shock us, that, that we're not receiving the wrath of God. Like, I've said this before. If we could kind of take a little technology, plug it into your brain, and just play your thoughts from the last week, like, would that not terrify you? <laughs> Like all the evil deeds that you did just this last week. Like God sees all of that. And so what we should be as we're reading this is wonder like, why am I not receiving this wrath? Right? In John 15.1, or in, or in 15.1, John says this, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with the seven plagues, which are the last. And this is what he said. With them, the wrath of God is finished. This is the final outpouring of God's wrath. So the question for all of us should be, if I'm a sinner, if I fall short of God's glory, then, then why am I not receiving the wrath of God? But this is what's awesome. There's another time in the Bible where the wrath of God is finished for God's people. And it was on the cross when Jesus Christ took our sins. In Luke 22, you know the story. Jesus kneels down. He's in the garden. He's about to go to the cross. He kneels down and listen to what he prays. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What is he saying? He's saying, God, I'm about to drink the cup of God's wrath. And if there's any other way for people to be saved, if there's any other way for your will to be accomplished, God, let it be done. Not my will, though, but yours be done. And listen to this. In being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He's in such emotional stress and anguish as he looks ahead to the cross that he's sweating drops of blood. And I want you to think about this because I've heard a lot of preachers explain it that he's about to get whipped and, and nailed to a cross. And wouldn't you be in anguish? And, and certainly that would cause some emotional stress and anxiety. But that is not why Jesus is sweating drops of blood. Listen, there are, there are Christians who have sang hymns on the way to be burnt at the stake. And Jesus is not weaker than them. Why is he in such turmoil and stress here? Here's why. It's because he knows he's about to absorb the wrath of God for his people. I want you to think about that. On the cross, listen, on the cross, believe me, the scourging hurt. 
The crown of thorns hurt. The nails in his hands and his feet hurt. But while he's on the cross, he opens his mouth and he exposes us to something far greater than physical pain and public shame. He cries out in agony and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, in that moment on the cross, Jesus Christ allowed our sins to separate him from his father. He became sin for us who knew no sin. He absorbed the wrath of God that we deserve. He drank the cup of God's wrath full strength for us. And so as we read about God's wrath that's coming, when God's wrath is is to be finished, those of us who have repented and believed should rest and rejoice in the gospel that we don't face that wrath because Jesus faced it for us. Rejoice in that. Don't let that get old to you. That Jesus took the wrath of God that you deserved. That we're saved today because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's that's awesome. He allowed our sin to separate us from his father. He, He absorbed the wrath that we deserved. And so if there's anything we get out of these chapters, it's rest and rejoice in the gospel. The good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose again so that we could be saved. I said this last week, but because of the gospel, you have salvation from sin. You have, an, you have acceptance and approval with God, a relationship with your creator. You have an unshakable identity, not based on what you do, but based on what God has declared. Nobody can take it from you. You've got everlasting joy. You've got the glorious hope of eternal life in heaven with God. Like Those are just a few things that the gospel brings us. And so preach the gospel to yourself every single day. How did those Christians in the last message, how did they conquer? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives, even unto death. They loved Jesus more than life because they knew that Jesus had took the wrath of God for them. And can I just say, if you're here and you've never repented and believed, that's why I'm always asking you to do it. I'm always telling you, like, if if you're here and you hear that message that you're a sinner separated from God, that Jesus took your sin, like, I'm pleading with you. This is eternal. This is real. Like, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and be saved. If you have questions, reach out to me on that. But as we zoom out and look at this final exodus, this final outpouring of the wrath of God, we should really be full of worship and adoration. That we have experienced a greater liberation, a greater redemption, a greater freedom, a greater exodus because of Jesus. Revelation 15 and 16 has peeled back the curtain. It's given us a glimpse of this final day. And so we know how it ends. And so if we know how it ends, that should dramatically and drastically shape the way we live today, should it not? And so here's the question I want to leave with you. Are you living in light of the end? Like, are you, a living, are you living with these eternal realities weighing on your heart and mind? Are you living with the calm assurance that evil will not triumph? How awesome is that? People were just going crazy last year because of conspiracy theories and, and I don't know and I don't think who God voted in really got voted. It's just people were losing their mind because, well, evil's not getting punished and, and there's this, this thing going on and nobody knows about it and, and it's hidden and, and there's all these crooked cops and everybody's freaking out about this. But we know that justice will be done, that God's keeping track. We don't have to get flustered. We don't bring justice. We don't bring vengeance. God does. So let's calm down and trust our sovereign father. We don't like it. We look at the evil and the injustice and we hate it. And we pray for for justice to come. But we live with the calm assurance. It's coming. And we warn those whom we love and everyone to flee from the coming wrath of God. 
Are you living with that reality? Are you sharing the gospel with those around you? Are you staying morally alert and awake? Living righteously, keeping your garments on, staying in the fight? And are you resting and rejoicing in the gospel? If you miss that third one, you're going to miss all of it. You're going to try to do this in your own strength, and you're going to get punched in the face by Satan tomorrow, and you're going to give up. We need the gospel, okay? Like some of you think I wake up and like an angel comes by my bedside and says, come, son, and preach my word. Like that's not how it is for me. I wake up with Satan sitting on my face too, right? And so I need the gospel every day that I've been saved from the wrath of God, that I'm a child of God, not because I'm good, not because I'm a preacher, not because I try to come to church. I joked with Shane today. I woke up really tired and I said, hey, can we skip today? I'm a little tired, right? I feel that too, Right? I get it. And so we need the gospel every single day. Man, imagine if you woke up every day and you preached the gospel to yourself. I've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. I'm a child of God. Nobody can take that from me. I have eternal life coming. That's spiritual armor. And so are you living in light of the end? If we know how it ends, it should drastically shape how we live today. Are you living in light of the end? Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on.